Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack-of-all-trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Now, on to today's conversation. podcast, Master of None. This is Clifford Hudson. Our discussion today is going to be with a fellow who has found opportunity upon opportunity, very much aligned with the discussion in my book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top, and a chapter entitled, Your And is More Important Than Your What. The theme here is one that opportunities can be found within opportunities. Business enterprise expansion can be found within existing businesses. My guest, Bill Fromm, will talk about just such an avenue, a path he has pursued throughout his career extraordinarily successfully. I think you'll enjoy listening to Bill Fromm's story. It's a unique one and a very interesting one. So I look forward to sharing this time with you with Bill Fromm. My guest today is Bill Fromm. Bill is from Kansas City, uh, is quite an entrepreneur, and I want to talk today about his entrepreneurship, but the unique way in which he has grown and developed his businesses over time. I mentioned Bill grew up in Kansas City. He attended Northwestern University and took a degree in journalism there, and then returned to Kansas City and really went right straight into business, which quite apparently something he loves and thrives in, uh, having founded at least two businesses over time. Barclay Advertising Agency of Kansas City and the Service Management Group of Kansas City, both sizable agencies or organizations, the first one of national scope and the other one of international scope. I first met Bill in the 1990s uh, through his advertising business, and he had a central role in helping us think strategically about our business and uh, have been working with him off and on in different capacities since that time. So, it's my pleasure today to have on the show Bill Fromm. Bill, welcome. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Good. Happy to happy to have you. Bill, as you know, one of the things to talk about in the in my book coming out October 13th is uh, this idea that your and is more important than your what. And uh, so in other words, these opportunities that you see in front of you. I think that's kind of a dominant theme in your career from the way I understand it, see it. And I think it'd be interesting for the listener to hear about some early experiences, uh, one of which you described to me of uh, attending a luncheon as you were finishing uh, university education, but attending it with your father in in Kansas City. And I say that because that experience must have given you a sense of scope about what was possible in the in the world in terms of your own looking out, your own ventures. But why don't I why don't I stop there and that you uh, tell our listeners about that, I think, but it had to be a pretty unique, unique experience. Well, I've I've always been somewhat of an opportunist. And uh, so every year here in Kansas City, uh, starting uh, right after Harry Truman uh, left office as president of the United States, they would have a uh, birthday dinner for him, a luncheon, actually, not a dinner, a luncheon. And uh, all the uh, 
uh, movers and shakers in the city were invited to this luncheon. And my father, his best friend was a uh, uh, in charge of this luncheon, was the guy that kind of put it together every year and put it on and had the guest list and so forth. So I was back home from school and on a break. And, and so my father got me uh, on the list to go to the luncheon. And uh, in addition to uh, meeting President Truman and having an opportunity to, to talk to him, Thomas Hart Benton, the artist, was also one of the guests there. And uh, we were standing in a, in a circle and, and uh, talking, and he happened to casually mention that he came over uh, without his own car and he was going to have to figure out how to get home. And I immediately jumped in and said, well, I'll take you home. So... I drove him home, and and so he invited me to uh, this building behind his house, a large building, uh, which was his studio, and and it was a very fascinating experience, and it taught me to speak up and seize the moment. Well, I can see that, and it uh, one I can see it because uh, I've observed you do that for decades now, but also <laughs> to be a young person early on in the development of your career, and to meet such extraordinary people in different uh, operating spheres, one politician operating at the greatest levels, at least from a national standpoint and international, but an artist as well, that would have to affect a young man's perspective about what what his world could look like and what he could pursue uh, coming out of Kansas City. That's a, I find that a, a fascinating, enjoyable story. My impression is when, uh, even though in thinking about you know, what your path would be there from there. So if you're in college and obviously when finishing with a degree, thinking about what's their next opportunity, it strikes me that one of the things that you have done in your career, and maybe rather than fill in the blank, I should uh, turn it over to you. But the idea is it struck me in understanding your path is that you didn't necessarily go looking for a job, but rather while you were uh, home from college or finishing college, that you literally were already working in a very entrepreneurial fashion and starting to build a business rather than looking for a position with the firm. Do do I recall that correctly? Yeah, actually, uh, I mentioned uh, the guy that was a good friend of my dad's who uh, was in charge of the Truman Luncheon was also the, uh, at that time, the president general manager of the Mühlbach Hotel, which was the major hotel in Kansas City. It was where that luncheon was held every year. And when I was back uh, from school in the summer of my, between my junior and senior year, he uh, uh, mentioned uh, that uh, he needed an ad agency. And so I immediately again seized the opportunity and told him that I could do it, even though I could, was going back to Northwestern for my senior year, I could do it from there. And, and so uh, I actually, when I graduated from Northwestern, I already had my first client under my belt. Uh, so that's a that's got to be a fairly unusual path, I would think these days. Particularly someone thinking about going into business, maybe thinking more about looking for a conventional job. Your approach to getting into the business and building it, I think, was um, uh, in some ways uh, I, it struck me in terms of the manner in which you approached it and thought about it. You told me one time about the the Barclay firm and the, and the name for the Barclay firm that uh, it could be called the Fromm Agency. It wasn't called the Fromm Agency, uh, now called Barclay, at one time called Barclay and Evergreen. Tell our listeners the way that name came about, Barclay and Evergreen. Well, uh, it was uh, at the time Fromm Advertising, uh, when I'm going back to a time, it was called Fromm Advertising. And we merged with a, a company 
in Detroit called Yaffe Stone in August. And uh, the door just wasn't big enough for all those names on it. And at the time, we were on Barclay Street in Overland Park, and they were on Evergreen Street in Southfield, Michigan. So we decided to name the agency after two streets, Barclay and Evergreen. That merger only lasted for about a year. They left. I kept the name. And um, then Barclay and Evergreen eventually got shortened to just plain right, Barclay. Right. Well, to me, that uh, it's a, a small story, but a, a one indicative of a different approach to the business in terms of creativity and you know how to kind of move to the next step. The main reason I did it was because I felt like it sounded bigger if there were two names on the door. But right. I always used to introduce myself. I'd say, I'm Bill Fromm. I'm president of Barkley and Evergreen. There is no Mr. Barkley. There is no Mr. Evergreen. I named it after two streets. <laughs> well, it seemed like it worked well. It was a good formula. So on this concept of the and um, is more important than your what. So the and being things, of course, that can arise while you're in the business and can be something more of an extension of an opportunity rather than a leap to a different path altogether. You described early, as we just started speaking today, you said you considered yourself something of an opportunist that you do see opportunities and you do, you see them and you, and you seize them. My sense of your expansion, these are two businesses, uh, sizable businesses that you've built over the years and uh, the first one being Barclay, and as I mentioned earlier, the second one being the, the larger of the two, service management group. Some individuals, some people may say you built one, did you hop to the other? But my sense is you saw each, you saw several steps as a logical extension that didn't necessarily jump to new business, but really first perhaps began expanding because of a relationship um, that you saw an extension in your Barclay business. Uh, to YPO and to a Harvard Business School professor that the two of you had complementary interests that I, I would describe as something of an and in your in your business. Your thoughts on that? So I was in the advertising business and um, I was also in an organization called YPO and I ended up being a, a international vice president of marketing for YPO Worldwide. So I Traveled around the world, did a lot of speaking for them, and met a lot of interesting people. I was doing some speaking as uh, to YPO chapters as uh, uh, part of what I did, and uh, was in uh, the Minneapolis chapter uh, for a presentation, uh, and met Harvey McKay, who was the uh, an author of a business book, very very successful business book called uh, How to Swim with Sharks. He suggested after my talk that I should write a book, which I did. And then um, my agent at the same time, uh, Len Schlesinger, who at the time was an associate professor at Harvard Business School, later to become dean of the business school, had uh, written a book on the service profit chain. He was also speaking at YPO, and we ended up working together on some YPO things and uh, ended up having Doubleday uh, suggest that we... Uh, do a book together on customer service and the impact on profitability of customer serv- great customer service, which is what the service profit chain that, that he uh, wrote about was all about. So we wrote that book, and uh, then my speaking evolved into that, and uh, that the best way to increase your profits was to increase your 
employees attitude toward the business because they would then deliver greater customer service, which would yield greater profits. And if you then give some of that money back to the employees, you create this wonderful positive link. You close the loop. So as a part of that, uh, we were, I, I got approached by a, a division of Walmart uh, to see if we could do an employee survey for them. I, I don't know who told me this, but I've always felt like every time you're asked if you can do something, the only answer you give is yes. Because if go. you say no, it's over. Yeah. So you say yes, and then you figure out figure how to it make out. it happen. Yeah, that's, that's right. Figure it out. That's right. So um, they asked if we could uh, do, a, if we had the ability to do their customer surveys. And I said, oh, of course. And um, uh, so we did that. And then I was also asked to do a consulting project for Hallmark Gold Crown stores. As a part of that, uh, they were doing a customer survey and asked if we could do the survey. And I answered with the only answer I know, which is yes. And that really was the, the impetus to uh, the uh, beginnings of the service management group, which started out as a, a group within, it was called the service manager group because it was actually a group within Barclay. And um, what we did was uh, when I did an ESOP with Barclay. Well, if, I could, if I could interject something just real quickly there, the very fact that it was a division of Barclay, I think really speaks to the, to the idea that it was an and. In other words, it wasn't a, it didn't come up as a new enterprise altogether. Right. It, it, it no, evolved no. from it and pursued right. it. But go ahead, yeah. you, when you, when you so, sold Barclay to so, an ESOP. When, we sold, when I sold uh, Barclay to an ESOP, before I sold it, I split it out. I split the service management group out. One of my sons, Andy, who ha- had been involved and runs it today, still runs it today, and Len Schlesinger and I were the three uh, principals of that, or owners of that at that time. Len is no no longer involved. Right, right. Well, it's a fascinating sort of extension. I, that's really around the time that or a little later still that you and I uh, would have met in your advisory work, uh, you, you were doing uh, marketing clearly. I actually got involved with Sonic because of YPO also. I had d- yes. delivered a, uh, I was delivering a, pre- a speech at uh, the Oklahoma City chapter and uh, the president at that time of Sonic came up and yes. asked me if I would talk to your advertising people. Yeah, well, that was a good thing. Good thing that you did. But I remember uh, if you would have come into the business, being uh, the relationship with Sonic in the early 90s, uh, in that 94, 95 timeframe, our management team meeting with you and Lynn Schlesinger, and the discussion really was very much, it was less about what should the advertising look like and more about what did our customers think, how do we build a brand, and how should we go about thinking about uh, building the business as a brand. And it really led to a very significant rebranding effort, as you know, well, altogether for our company. Yeah, if you remember at that time, half the franchisees had Coke and half had Pepsi. Yep. Uh, half of the, half of them wrapped their their burgers in foil and the other half in paper. And right. uh, it was impossible to deliver a message of any meaning about the brand because it didn't matter what you said, half half the time it wouldn't be true. Right. Right. Well, at least half the time it'd be right anyway. So that's you know, right. <laughs> you're always half right. Uh, but a significant uh, transition time. Uh, your comment a moment ago about just say yes. 
it's ironic you make that point. In in my book, Master of None, there is a chapter that just says, just say yes, and what the consequences of that can be. And other people clearly in business like Richard Branson, who obviously said yes and yes and yes and and kept pushing out uh, significantly throughout his his career. But uh, a nice uh, perspective about about customer service. On the the thoughts of the rebranding, I think about how this very concept of your and is more important than your what. And the idea that a business can be buried within a business and the opportunities there uh, within the business to expand it and, uh, and take a new path. One of the things that uh, we experienced at Sonic, I talk about it in my book, Master of None, and I think you'll remember this all too well. We saw, uh, because the franchisee brought it to us, we saw an opportunity to expand our business. We didn't appreciate what it could become. But um, with our, in that 96 timeframe, 1996 timeframe, expand our frozen and fountain favorites, as we called it. So here was something that uh, previously 100% of the stores had an ice cream machine, but not a single one of them had a program. At least we didn't, I should say, we didn't have a system-wide program. One franchisee did. And he saw the and in our business and grabbed it and ran with it. He shared it with us in part because some of our folks were resisting it. And so our and was to take this thing that was buried within the business, make it its own program. And of course, sales and profits just exploded when we did that, which in turn paid for the rebranding that you uh, helped us consider and uh, move, move toward. This kind of and concept, it seems to me every enterprise has such an opportunity. As you look at that now, looking back, are there and opportunities that you can see you could have pursued, but you you didn't pursue. Are there ands that you pursued differently and now see an opportunity that you still see but didn't see in years past? Any perspective on that with time? There are other ventures that I've gotten into, which were um, not so much and uh, as much as just opportunities where I leaped in and said yes. I can't really think of any opportunities that I didn't pursue it would have been out of character for me yeah i i, I just and uh, and yes I were never, powerful words yeah and i never worried about i never worried about failing so it wasn't like uh, i was going to be nervous about doing something right right the smg took the service management group took its identity them formally when it was spun out from from barclay then that was what 19 19- Mid nineteen nineties or when when was when yeah was that? it would have been about ninety three ninety four somewhere in there right and I'm assuming that the evolution of this that initially I'm, I mean it's like the world uh, and what I'm referring to there is the role of technology I'm assuming that initially technology had a moderate role but that one of the things that allowed the exceptional expansion of service management group to expand was by building a technology platform that you could leverage with multiple clients and not only in the U S but even across, across the world. Yeah. So when we started all our, almost all our surveys were uh, done with what's called, what was called IVR technology, which was basically the customer called a phone number and then pressed one for yes and two for no. And, and, and you took the survey over the phone uh, on a computer, so to speak, when the internet came into being and and we changed over to doing it on the internet, that was really a game changer opportunity because, you know, today we operate in 100 countries, we take surveys in 40 languages, and almost all of it is done uh, on the internet. Music.
feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a quote expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview. So when, when, you, when it was spun out from Barclay in the mid-90s, how many clients... How many clients were you working for? It was SMG working with at that time, would you say? Oh, I would guess maybe a half a dozen. Yeah, so six six clients. And, and today... Six to 10, 500 worldwide. Today, you're working with five, 500 different brands across the across the world doing customer and employee surveys, if I have the right. impression yes. correct. So, That's right. So uh, as a listener to this program, here's that. This is one of the things that just floors me is to think about something that was an opportunity within an opportunity, a business a whole different business that grows out of a an existing business, which 30 years ago virtually didn't exist, and today is obviously a multi-million dollar business operating in in 100 different countries, 40, 50 different brand uh, uh, languages, as you say, and 500 different brands. So, Cliff, extraordinary. The, yes, the the thing that that I I would say to your listeners is at the time that that first company came and said. Can you do this employee survey? The simple answer could have been, no, we don't do, we're an advertising agency. We don't do employee surveys. Right. And then when then when Hallmark came to us and said, do you do customer surveys? No, we don't do customer surveys. But again, back to this, uh, not only and, but the chapter in your book about yes. I mean, say yes and figure it out. And if you have to go back and say, gee, I'm so sorry, I'm, it turns out, we can't do it. I wouldn't want to do a disservice to you. I thought we could, but if we can't do it perfectly, I don't want to do it. Set it up so they ask you another time for something else. But right. don't say no. That's the end of the game. Yeah, that's a. And your your comment about don't say no. It's the end of the game is a great is a great uh, corresponding um, lesson to the just say yes. In my book, one of the things I talk about it. My own story of just say yes is is my progression through Sonic, which you've uh, witnessed over the years, but then offered to move from general counsel as the chief financial officer, which I never would have anticipated, but I said yes, and offered to move from the CFO to the chief operating officer, which I never would have anticipated, but I said yes. And then one day, in a surprise, uh, my predecessor left a board meeting, and the board took a break, and when they came back, they asked me, do you want to be CEO, which I'd never anticipated, and I said yes. So it, it is a, it is very That's much right. along those lines of say yes and then figure it out. You can change your mind later if you have to, you know, so... Yeah, but at any, at, at any rate, the transitions that we're talking about over time, it'd be uh, in a way you've kind of walked through elements of that. But it seems, oh, I, this is the angle that your comment struck me when you said someone can come to you and say, uh, "Would you handle this survey?" And you say, "We're not in the survey business." I mean, quite apparently, you 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 were with Barclay forming an ESOP. You're going to sell the company into an ESOP. You've got executives with Barclay that I'm sure at the time were very excited about that because of the you know potential for 
uh, ownership for them and long-term benefit for themselves, uh, growing the business for them. But you must have had people who also looked at this business, this little thing down the hall that was doing the service management type activity, the surveys, et cetera, et cetera. You must have had people who within the company who said, that's not what, that's not the business we're in. We don't need that. Go ahead and take it. Form an ESOP, but but you take that, get that out of here. Yeah, I I was actually anticipating when my son Andy uh, said that we ought to split it out. I I was concerned because I didn't know if if uh, se- senior management would go along with it. It turned out that the the guy that was going to end up being the president CEO of the company after the ESOP was formed didn't think much of the business and right. uh, and uh was more than happy to uh get rid of it so uh that was a that was obviously a a, a big big opportunity for us right well it, they some transition in what that means over time just in your own circumstance probably if you had half a dozen clients probably fairly limited billings at the time and yet today service management group um, I don't know the revenues of either, both privately held companies, but it must be a significant multiple of the revenues for for Barclay. So it's just fascinating to see, you know, spinning out of one and becoming the bigger company, global company over time. It does remind me a little bit, just on a different scale, when we, as I mentioned earlier about the uh, just say yes and the uh, opportunity of business within a business in the Sonic situation where we rolled out Frozen and Fountain Favorites program in 1996 and what it became over time. Before we rolled it out, ice cream must have been 25 million sales for the entire system. Today, that's got to be on the order of 500 million. But I remember one of my franchisees telling me the story of a longtime operator, partner of his, saying uh, by 1997 or so, a year into the ice cream program, when are we going to stop selling ice cream? And the franchisee said he told him, never, I hope never. So it's interesting, different people see those things differently in terms of um, opportunity and uh, what the opportunity can mean. In other words, seeing that opportunity as it may just be a kernel within a larger enterprise, but being able to leverage that into a separate business altogether. So I find this interesting, Bill, no small way. Many listeners are people that are probably working for a larger employer and thinking about thinking that the only way to grow their uh, opportunity is by jumping to a new job. It seems to me one of the things that you bring to the discussion is that and may be under your roof today. I had a, in my first book, I I talked about the concept of me incorporated. Everybody, whether they're an entrepreneur running their own business or working in a small or large company, doesn't matter. From from a career standpoint, you you have to think about me, comma, Inc., me incorporated and how am i going and, and think of it as yourself as a business you are in, a, in the business of making money it could be salary but you're still in the business of making money and you have expenses and what are you going to do to grow that business it could be through advancement of the existing company it could be through your existing employer it could be changing companies it could be going out on your own it, it could be you know lots of different things if you think about it that way Right, so the opportunity uh, the opportunity is there even in a larger. That's a good that's a good framework for a, a more conventional employee to think about it. The, the me incorporated and how do you grow revenues? 
it's probably a lesson that's a little easier to see and perceive for someone who's in the entrepreneurial setting, a closely held business, and particularly as you did, uh, particularly if you own the business, because you you can kind of call the shots then on what you want to expand right. toward and what you don't want to call, expand towards. So uh, a little little uh, different control element in those two. But I'm glad you made that point because the workaday person is, that has a larger employer and has listened to this, uh, you make the point that there's opportunity for that too by thinking about the me incorporated and how do you expand that. Great story. So curious, Bill, with your extensive experience and uh, watching these two businesses grow over time, whether from a general standpoint, this concept of and or otherwise, uh, for our people out there listening to this who are working, which is going to be a lot of people, any observations now, several uh, decades into the building of these businesses, any observations or comments that you pass along that could be interesting for them to take away from our discussion today? I think if I could, if I were forced to just say, come up with one, let's say, call it the most important principle that that I tried to operate by that was probably more of a key to my success than anything else, it would be this. I believe that you cannot pay good people too much and you can't pay mediocre people too little. Mm. If you surround yourself with great talent and give them uh, the opportunity to grow, then you get to stand back and watch. I'm involved Mm. in a business right now uh, that I own uh, the majority, I'm the majority owner. I have a minority partner who I brought in uh, five years ago to manage this business. He had never managed a, a business. He'd been in the business in the industry, but had never managed any business before. I brought him in and uh, worked with him for about six months, and then just said, you know, go do it, and call me if you know, call me if you have a problem, and. My attitude has always been that my role is to cut red tape for the people that are running the business. If you have a mm-hmm. problem and you need me, somebody to cut red tape for you, come see me. Otherwise, uh, no news is good news and just go do it. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating thing, way to think about that from the compensation standpoint, as well as the uh, turning loose of control to build the business. Both great lessons for a business operator, really, at any level. Uh, and the I, and the it doesn't go, you know, it's not just for people that own a business. You could be in a large company and you're responsible for twenty or thirty people, and you're responsible for hiring in that division. Right. Uh, you 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 need to find the you, you you can't settle for mediocrity. Mediocrity will kill a business faster than anything. Yeah. Well, in some ways, in terms of the the control piece and maybe the compensation piece. So certainly from a benefit standpoint, this is something that Reed Hastings talks about quite a bit in his discussions about Netflix and the organizational structure, the benefits, the work schedule, and but also how much control executives have, which is you know quite extensive in their area of responsibility. So it, 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 it's a lesson, obviously, he learned and applied, but one that you've done enormously successfully as well. So, well, Bill, I appreciate the time today. I think these are very good uh, it's not only a very interesting story that you have, but this whole concept of the and, the opportunity being buried within the enterprise you're already managing. So the and being more important than the what. So this is uh, 
a, a good theme for folks and hopefully your own story can incentivize people to begin looking at their opportunities in, in that way as well. Before getting off, I just want to yep. say to your listeners that one of the opportunities I've had in the last few months is an opportunity to read an advanced copy of, of your book. And I would encourage people, anybody in business to read it. I think it's a great read and there's some great lessons in there. Well, uh, I can say I appreciate that, Bill. So for our <laughs> listeners, that is, that is uh, Master of None, how a jack of all trades can still can still reach the top. So, Bill, thank you for that reminder. That's good. <laughs> thank you. It's good to be okay. with you. Okay. Good to be Very with well. you too, Bill. Take care. Talk soon. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go, would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Opportunity.